Welcome to another episode of Dialogues. I'm very excited by today's conversation with Joe Henrik, who is the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard, where he also runs a, a lab on culture, cognition, and coevolution. I, I should say that this is the second time that I've uh, spoken to Joe, but I made the uh, beginner podcaster error of not recording our previous wonderful conversation. Uh, and so he graciously agreed to give it another go. So this is the second time that I have spoken to him at length and the first time that you'll have had a chance to hear us discussing his latest book, which is called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. And he has this very big argument in his book, which is that Western societies and the psychology of those in them became more individualistic, more democratic, and more rich. And that was the result of a real fun, a fundamental shift in societies led by the church, which undermined kin-based, clan-based networks, bringing about the rise of the nuclear family. And that those universalizing tendencies prompted a big innovation of impersonal trust. So we could exchange goods with people that we didn't know, which was really revolutionary. And along the way, and along with literacy that altered the, our brains and helped to lay the foundations for free markets and geographical mobility and democratic institutions. I should say that he's at pains to point out that these differences occur within countries as well as between them. There isn't this clear division of the world between weird cultures and non-weird. Weird stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. It's, a, it's an acronym to try and capture a way of viewing the world, which those of us who are weird tend to think of as quite natural and perhaps think it applies to everybody. And he makes the point that, that it does not. One of the most interesting parts of his work, I think, is this idea of co-evolution, which gets us completely past the, the really tired nature-nurture distinction and how culture actually shapes our biology. We also talk about how polygamy causes a, a math problem of surplus men and the rise of the incel movement, uh, along with feminism. We talk about the way that testosterone plays out in culture and how marriage lowers testosterone levels and why that's, why that's a good thing. Uh, we make a tour through the life of Brian and what have the Romans ever done for us. Uh, lots more besides a really rich conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Joe Henrik, welcome to Dialogues. Oh, it's good to be with you. I should say welcome back to Dialogues, having having committed the, the, the error that apparently all podcasters make at some point, which is to forget to record. Uh, wonderful conversation. And so uh, I'm doubly in your debt that you're willing to overlook my technical incompetence and and come back on. And I'm sure I'm sure it'll be an even better conversation. But but, let, but rest assured, dear listener, it was a wonderful conversation that we had before. So I, I, think I just I, look on it as a rehearsal. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that just raises the stakes, though. But, but it was wonderful. And I'm really, really looking forward to digging in on uh, on your ideas and your work, and, and particularly your, your latest book, but how that builds on your previous work. But before we, before we get into that, just to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up doing the kind of work you're doing, because just a, it looks like you started out doing aerospace, like rocket science. So how did you decide to get, not be a rocket scientist and instead be right. interested in co-evolution? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, I started off studying engineering. Uh, but as I was going through, I took some classes in anthropology and got really interested in that. So I was lucky that Notre Dame had a five-year dual degree program. So I ended up with a BS in aerospace engineering and a BA in anthropology. And by the end, I was pretty interested in anthropology, but I wasn't really ready to jump off and 
and and just become an anthropologist. So I I got a job for two years uh, in Washington D.C. working as an aerospace engineer, and I kept reading and trying to decide. At one point, at the end of undergraduate, I was considering applying in space propulsion as an engineer or in anthropology, but I figured it didn't make sense to you know send out all those applications. So I I, I, I took two years to think about it, and then eventually ended up going to grad school at UCLA. One day there'll be a job, space anthropologist, where you have to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for that. I can, yeah, I can yeah, create yeah. the next generation. Exactly, perfect to understand the alien species that we uh, we discover. So, and now you you run a lab which is called the, the Lab for Culture, Cognition, and Coevolution. And and this this idea of coevolution seems foundational to your work on on my reading and somewhat counterintuitive perhaps to the people who aren't in this field the, the typical debate is about oh is it nature or nurture oh that's just culture and no oh no that's biology and there those those two things are seen as in necessary opposition to each other as co-evolving and i think especially the idea that culture can influence our biology as well as the other way around doesn't come naturally can you talk a little bit about how you see that idea of co-evolution yeah, so there's a set of interrelated ideas here. And the first one, I think, is is really core to getting past the nature-nurture distinction. And it's this idea that our capacities for learning from other people, for, for acquiring culture, from learning things from your parents and from other members of your community, that creates this, this traditions and this transfer of information and beliefs and know-how and religions and all that kind of stuff – from one generation to the next, is actually itself a product of natural selection that compared to other animals, we're super good at learning from other members of our community, at figuring out their underlying beliefs and strategies, and that we especially have this second system of inheritance. Um, and then related to, so then related to that is the idea that uh, these, this, we, we become so dependent on culture for learning uh, how to make tools, fire, uh, finding food, all of these things that we had to do for hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers is actually we're, we're very dependent on culture for it. So the idea is you had this long period of time where culture was the driving selection pressure on our genes. So something like fire and cooking alters our diet. And it means we have kind of pre-digested food, the proteins are denatured in cooked meat. And this means this takes the selection pressure on, on the genes that build our physiology, our teeth and our stomachs and our digestive tract. And actually, so our digestive tract can only be understood as a product of gene culture co-evolution. And this goes for many other parts of our anatomy. And then the part I'm particularly interested in is our brains and our psychology. Yeah. So I think that lots of our psychology and actually the size of our brains has been driven by selection pressures created by cultural evolution. Well, one example of that that you draw heavily on is literacy and, and what that does to the brain, if I understand it correctly. And that's quicker, presumably. I mean, our brains changed quite rapidly as a result of the spread of literacy, if I read Yeah, that. so the literacy is a good... So there's, there's two separate ideas. And the idea I was just developing is the idea that culture is driven genetic evolution. But the other way that culture affects our biology is by changing the environments in which we adapt onto genetically. So by not changing our genes. So the literacy is a great case of how a young child raised in an environment where reading is valued and they're surrounded by books and they're incentivized to learn to read or they're sent to school. They, they practice, you know, this reading and it actually creates specialized circuitry in our left hemisphere. It creates a thicker corpus callosa which is the information highway that connects the left and right sides of the brain. So it actually alters our brain, even though it doesn't affect our genes. So one of the ideas people have is that somehow culture is non-biological. 
But we now have enough from cultural neuroscience and studies of brain plasticity that the way we learn is by altering our brains. So when, it's, when if you take identical twins, exactly the same genes, raise them in different societies, they end up with different brains because their brains are adapting to different uh, constraints and incentives and rules and of whatever it is their society they're growing up in. Yeah, I think a central move here is to dis- is to make the distinction between genetic change and biological change. As you say, we can change our biology without changing our genetic code, and that culture interacts with biology in some of the ways you just, including our neuro neurobiology. And actually, this uh, your most recent book builds on your previous book, which really focuses on the nature of cultural learning. I think that the, the last book was the, the secret of our success, and. There you talk about cultural learning, it's called cultural pedagogy. And and it seems as if there's an interesting set of tools through which we learn and transmit cultural knowledge. And so I've got, I've written down like taboos, religions, norms, rituals, et cetera. How do you describe the way in which we learn culturally, how this transmission, this second inheritance, I love that idea, second inheritance, how does that take place? In other words, how do I learn? I come into the world as a baby. How do I I take in all this cultural knowledge? Yeah, so this is this is the key insights that come from studying babies and young children and comparing them to other non-human primates. And so, you know, the the famous developmental psychologist Mike Tomasello describes human children as imitation machines. So babies come into the world, they've already learned their mother's accent and stuff, and they start learning to use words as tools, they start learning about objects, they're getting categories, they're acquiring language, other kinds of behavioral patterns. Um, so it's observation and they're selective about who they pay attention to. So there's a lot of research showing that babies and young children are uh, attending to those who are more competent, uh, seem more skilled. Eventually they're using cues of prestige. They're also relatively early on as toddlers, uh, matching, attending to those who match them on sex. Uh, they use things like dialect as a cue to who, who to pay attention to. And all of these things we make the case have been evolved by natural selection to help babies and young children and eventually adults uh, attend to and learn from those most likely to possess things that are going to be useful to them later in life that would increase their fitness. Uh, And then, of course, they're biased to certain domains. So it's, you know, young children will preferentially pay attention to which animals are dangerous and learn about those first for for obvious reasons. And uh, for example, there's a lot of research on plants. Kids learn about plants in particular ways. So all of these things help us acquire the knowledge we need uh, from the other members of our social group. And the other thing that's important, of course, is teaching. So humans seem to have evolved inclinations to, uh, towards pedagogical instruction. So, you know, young children will solicit information sometimes, and adults will say things in ways that make it easier for the kid to understand or demonstrate something in a way that's easier for kids to understand. One of the things you, you talk quite a lot about is the role of ritual. Uh, and obviously that comes up in discussions of religion and and how that's a form of learning too. We learn through rituals. We learn about opposition in the group. We learn about the importance of certain goods and so on. And one, one of the things I'm wondering about is whether the rituals work once you deconstruct them. In other words, so you talk about, for example, like a good ritual, I think it's it's synchronized, it's rhythmic, it and it has a shared goal. And so you know, a great example of that is the liturgy in many religions. Um, and I guess the question is how far – 
like a, a, a liberal individualist would say, yeah, but every individual should deconstruct everything, right? You shouldn't take anything for granted. Everything has to be broken down and rationalized. Does ritual lose some of its cultural force if it is broken down in that way? Is there some extent to which we just have to go with the, go, going through the motions is now seen as a bad thing, but maybe it's not a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a good question. And uh, in the in the secret of our success, I speculate that that it may in fact be a bad thing. So um, you, so you can imagine lots of group, lots of groups who get powerful social bonding and solidarity building by engaging in communal rituals, often do those rituals in the service of some supernatural agent, some God demands the ritual, or they've got to do it to fix some problem through supernatural means. And in in but because they're trying to satisfy the supernatural agent, they do the ritual, but the ritual does some serious psychological work. It binds people together, makes the group more cooperative. So there's a real tangible outcome in the sense of greater cooperation. And I, it's, it seems plausible to me that the ritual might not be as effective or people might be less inclined to do it if they didn't actually believe in the supernatural agent, say. And they just thought, well, if we do this, if we march around together, then we'll feel more bonded. Uh, but there actually, I don't know of a, you know, a good body of research, which really nails down that question. Uh, it could be my intuitions are wrong about that. Well, I was going to come to this a bit later, but it seems a good time to ask you now, because I noticed that in an interview, you did a podcast with Tyler Cohen a few years ago. He does this thing at the end, which is overrated, underrated. Um, and he, one of the ones he asked, he said, secular humanism. And you said, pass, you're allowed to pass as well. You passed on that. Did you pass on secular humanism part as a good because most people in your sort of profession in background were just secular humanism's good, right? We don't we don't need all this religion anymore. We've got human rights, we've got rule of law, we've got constitutional democracies, and you know, that thanks thanks religion, but we've got it from here essentially, uh, is the secular humanist view. So I was sort of surprised I mean maybe it was the underrated, underrated thing, but how do you how would you answer that question now? Are you worried that secular humanism, precisely because it's secular, won't do some of the cultural work that previously religious cultures did? Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I do have a uh, so I, it's, I think it's a good intellectual question because there is this sense in which um, you know, so I make the case that religion has helped increase cooperation and scale up human societies, but now we have these well-functioning secular institutions and we can we can just go from there. And that may be the case, but it also may be that there there's a binding force of uh, a shared religious notion with supernatural beliefs and, and rituals that bind people together in a way that no secular institution can accomplish. And there's a couple different lines of evidence that kind of point that way. One is this work done by uh, this anthropologist Rick Sosis and colleagues looking at these utopian communes in 19th century America. And there were both religious communes and secular ones. And he basically looks at the longevity of them. So which ones last and, and tries to develop some ideas about why they last. And it turns out costly rituals are, are, seem to be one reason why they last. But the secular ones fall apart immediately. Uh, or at least uh, they don't last nearly as long as the ritual one. So, so Mormonism is one of these, right? Still going strong. Uh, Hutterites are one of these, still going strong. So, um, but yeah, none of the secular communes seem to last. And, and if, you, if you look at these atheist groups, like atheists try to get together and form clubs and stuff, but bands of atheists cooperating in some intense way, it's just hard to, hard to imagine that really has as much energy as the kind that you get from religiously cooperative groups. Well, there was this idea of a religion of humanity in the 19th century. Auguste Comte was kind of in charge of it. And he ended up creating essentially a religion. He had a pontiff and they had all these. So, and, and, and there was briefly, uh, there was even a, a, 
a religion of humanity church in London and so on. But it just collapsed, I, I think, for some of the reasons that, that you've identified. But I think this, this, let's now go back a little bit to the way in which religion and Christianity in particular did rewire our brains and create what you call weird culture. Uh, and it seems to me there are two main uh, planks here to your argument. One is through what you call the marriage and family program and how the church, the Western church in particular, uh, altered that. And the second is relatedly, which is through this idea of moral universalism based on impersonal trust. So let's start with the the family one, because um, I think that's just, uh, I mean, fa- it was fascinating reading, I mean, f- to learn just how strong the church's teaching was against kind of kin- intensive kinship. And I'm just going to read a little bit from from your book here to situate this this bit of the conversation. You write the following, by undermining intensive kinship, the church's marriage and family policies gradually released individuals from the responsibilities, obligations, and benefits of their clans and houses, creating both more opportunities and greater incentives for people to devote themselves to the church. The accidental genius of Western Christianity was in figuring out how to dismantle kin-based institutions whilst at the same time catalyzing its own spread. I like to read that, first of all, because it's a good indication of what a great writer you are on top of it, as, as well as being a rocket scientist and an evolutionary <laughs> expert. But because um, I, I, there are many great examples of, of your of how you bring this stuff to, to bed. It, but that seems to me to kind of summarize the attack. The church attacked the family as it existed before. Uh, is that a correct characterization? And if so, what was the result of that? Yeah, so uh, the church had lots of different uh, local meetings. So, you know, initially the Western church is not unified under the Pope and it's a series of bishoprics, which are sort of loosely interconnected. And what I document in the book is that they're having meeting after meeting in different parts of Europe and they're gradually expanding the incest taboo on who you can marry to increase the cousins. They're preventing people from marrying in-laws. They're they're starting a spiritual kinship. Of course, they're always against polygyny. Um, they're putting a damper on adoption. They're trying to get people to inherit bilaterally, both through mom and dad. They're trying to prevent inheritance to uh, more collateral relatives like uncles and things like that. And, you know, that's actually creating an inflow of wealth into the church. Um, the push against kinship is also affecting the church itself. So monks are having to leave their families and make the church their families. That prevents the kind of control of uh, bishoprics or control of monasteries by clans, which is something you find in Ireland, which had a brand of Christianity that started before the church's marriage and family program. So it's a little bit of an experiment to see what that looks like without the marriage and family program. Mm. And uh, so all this is breaking down these 10 tense networks that European pre-Christian population had. And they looked a lot like, you know, the kinds of societies anthropologists have studied elsewhere. And then eventually, in some parts of Europe, it breaks these families down into monogamous nuclear families, from which you then need to build other kinds of institutions because you can't rebuild these intensive families. So you get these voluntary associations. So guilds start as mutual help uh, groups and eventually become occupational guilds. You get universities. You get these charter towns where you join as an individual or a nuclear family, and then you're a town member with some responsibilities, but also some privileges. And that these towns eventually become the center of a lot of commerce and trade. So, because we're still quite, we're still groupy 
kind of beings, what the church did was it shrank the idea of the family dramatically. I mean, it was a, a really extraordinary shrinking and therefore created a situation in which the groups would be based on different things, as you say, gills, etc. And that, that, in a sense, laid the foundation for all kinds of things that happened after that. The idea that you could be in a democracy, the idea that you could share a nation, have institutions that you would all subscribe to. Even though I don't even know you, I'm, I'm still going to subject myself to the same rule of law, for example. All right. of that was, was, was made possible by the breaking, in a sense, of the groupiness of the previously strong kins and clan networks. Yeah. And so a key part of the argument. So, so in the, in my account, the families don't do everything, but they can get the ball rolling because otherwise families are very strong. And anytime one of these other institution grows up, it can either be invaded by the family, like the monasteries were in, in Ireland, or it has to compete with the family. So people have loyalties. You know, I have loyalty to one group, but ultimately my family calls on me to do all this stuff. And my third cousin, you know, needs needs money for medical care and I've got to provide money to my third cousin. You know, so I, I see that in my own research. Uh, so, so that's the idea. It's so interesting. And and of course, against adultery, uh, extramarital sex, you know, the, the, et cetera, it was a very clear model. In fact, one of the many fascinating nuggets in your book is that there are 25 words for prostitute in Latin. Yeah. I mean, Rome had publicly funded brothels, right? It was a, it was an explicit strategy. We we got to keep the brothels cheap, cheap available sex, and you know, of course, you conquer and enslave people in order to make that happen. Yeah, um, and so there's so there's step one, if you like, is the you lay the foundations by altering the groupiness, breaking kin clan, and the second is that uh, I think creates the conditions for what you call a big innovation, which is the rise in impersonal trust. Impersonal trust is a pretty modern thing, uh, the idea that you would trust people that you, you didn't know. And in some ways, uh, Christianity in particular was part of that, partly because of what you've just described, so almost, I guess, anthropologically, culturally, but also in some sense theologically as well, because Christianity was a universal religion. In some ways, the, the ur-text that underlies a lot of this is St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was one of the big differences of Christianity as opposed to Judaism was that it was like, no, everyone, everyone everyone's going to be part of it. And, and so it spread. And what that meant was that there was a, there were conditions created within which there was a universalism. And it feels like that was, it feels like that was a revolution and that created all kinds of possibilities for trade and so on. Yeah. Um, the, uh, although an important element in my story is that uh, there was a number of universalizing religions, including Islam, uh, that have a kind of universalistic flair to it. And there were other brands of Christianity that didn't, didn't end up breaking down the family. So uh, I think of it as a necessary condition, but not sufficient, because you're always competing against the family if you, unless you've broken the family down to monogamous nuclear families. And you have this, well, I'm supposed to be more universalistic, but what about my clan, right? Or some other important family unit. So those things kind of fit together. And it's not unique to Western Christianity being morally universalistic. It's just that without the strong family ties and these bonds of tribe and clan and whatnot, uh, there's less competition in some sense for the religious moral universalism. Sure. So it was almost, it was a combination of those two things that created the sort of magic formula for much of what we saw happen after that. One of the things I find quite interesting is the role, and you've done quite a bit of work in this space, not only in this book, but more generally, the role of markets in facilitating impersonal 
trust because there's a, there's a story about markets which is that they're atomizing and totally commodified and they undermine trust and your research suggests the opposite actually that markets can increase trust is that right yeah and especially well so there's a couple different parts to the story but one of the things that um First, there's this seems to be this difference in the kinds of markets. So people have long engaged in, ex- in exchange, probably going back into the Paleolithic, there was exchange. But a lot of the exchanges see in small scale societies and among hunter gatherers and stuff involves exchange among people who all know each other. So you can have products, red ochre or something in Australia, moving across hundreds of miles and through many different hands, but no two people who exchange are ever strangers. Right. Uh, but what's interesting about the markets that emerge in Europe is there's lots of anonymous and impersonal exchange. Contract law gets developed. So people begin trusting strangers more than they had they did in other places. And I think once you have those markets going and those norms, then people become more trusting and fair-minded towards strangers. And market relationships begin to replace some of the things you'd rely on in, uh, impersonal relationships for. So, so markets increase impersonal prosociality, but then they often decrease interpersonal prosociality because you're relying on these other kinds of relationships less. So something like uh, unemployment insurance, well, that's not, well, I guess you could buy that on the open market that, that then replaces, um, uh, relying on certain relatives or, or friends or kinfolk like that. And so then you don't, then you're less tied to those folks. So there's this kind of trade-off. Yes, it's interesting. That was a big part of the debate about the growth of the welfare state in the UK, actually, which is that the beverage welfare state after World War II, which brought in universal benefits, was contested by some on the left who had a sort of a slightly more, I guess, communitarian left view, because what it did was it obliterated the uh, credit unions and trade union based, uh, uh, locally based uh, welfare. And it's, not, there was, it's not like there was no welfare before the welfare state. It's just that it was patchy. Sometimes it right. was related to churches and so on. And so from a social engineering point of view, it looked inefficient and unfair. And so it was replaced. But that's a big, that's a moral revolution as well as a policy uh, shift as much as anything else. I want I want to talk, about, and the result of all of this, of course, is to, is to create this peculiar psychology, which you write about and which is, which is uh, particularly that's in the West. And that I think, one of the central points you make is that we shouldn't assume that because we have developed this kind of psychology, which has resulted from the trends we've just been talking about, which is pretty highly individualistic, et cetera, that, that every, everyone has that. And in fact, most of the world is still not like that. Correct? Yeah. And that was one of the uh, points that I really wanted to make is that a common assumption in economics and even in psychology is that pretty much when you study, you know, university students or people on MTurk, as psychologists use this online tool for, for getting subjects, you're somehow studying features of human brains or human psychology. And it turns out that a lot of things measured by psychologists and economists actually vary quite a bit. So you don't want to generalize from the most commonly used subjects. So it's still the case that 95% of all subjects in psychology are come from weird societies. And we're really not just now mapping the kind of full breadth of human psychological variation. And it's not that there, you know, one thing I always caution people against is, you know, the weird acronym is really a consciousness raising device to remind people of this unusual population that, that so much of economics and psychology is based on. But when we look at global variation, it varies continuously and along different dimensions. So, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I look at a variation within Europe 
and even within European countries. So I, I look at Italy, for example, mm. how that varies from province to province across. So, you know, it's, you don't want to set up a weird versus non weird dichotomy. That's to raise your consciousness about all these dimensions of, of psychology that vary continuously. So I look at China, for example, and you can find interesting psychological variation just within China's 27 provinces. Yeah, I think that's important. In fact, did I read somewhere that you weren't even sure about the acronym? to start with that you had a slight you had that sort of yeah that's true bit of a wobble about it and was that because you you were afraid it was overly simplifying things yeah I, i was afraid it was overly simplifying things and it seemed a little gimmicky to me at the time uh, social psychologists. So I, I come from this anthropological background and they're more anthropologists are more inclined to give their papers, boring descriptive titles, but psychologists are a little jazzier and they look for something a little more marketable, uh, a little sexier. And so uh, anyway, so it didn't seem like an anthropological title to me, but you were persuaded and probably now you're reasonably content with the way that it's going. People, people, people. Well, are yeah. So I, I am content. And it was clear that having the acronym caused people to pay attention. It made it easy to remember, made people curious about it. So on that front, it really worked out. There, there has been a problem, though, with people kind of creating this weird versus non-weird dichotomy and trying to act like there's two big clumps in the world, when actually you get this continuous variation that you can see even within Europe, even within Italy. Um, so you know, we were very clear about this in the, in the 2010 paper, the first time we coined the acronym, but others have ran off and kind of simplified it and used it in ways that, that we didn't intend. So that's been a little tricky. Yeah, I do think it's important to underline the variation within countries, within communities, to some extent, perhaps even within you know, individuals, right? You probably can't even sort those, but, but I, you're right, because otherwise it takes on a bit of a clash of civilizations feel to it, right? Are you a weird, like, like is the US a weird country? Yes, but are there lots of non-weird people and communities in the US? You bet there are. Yeah. And that's what we've actually been studying the US. This is not in the book, but, um, we've been looking at, uh, variation in psychology across U.S. counties and linking that to election outcomes and things like that. And now we're trying to explain why we're getting this psychological variation across U.S. counties. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm very interested to see what will happen kind of as we go forward as to whether or not we see the how far, quotes non-weird communities grow in quite weird countries. And I think to some extent you can see some of our politics right now is based around some challenges to the sort of triumph of the we- the march to the weird yeah, you know, exactly. um, uh, in national. I think that's right. And the other thing is there's a tendency to, for people to then create a unidimensional process, which, you know, everybody is either non-weird and they're becoming weird or something like that. Whereas if you think about places like Japan or South Korea or China, you know, they're doing some third thing. They're definitely have acquired weird institutions. There are elements of weird psychology, but they're also interestingly different uh, along new ways. So you don't want to create like a unidimensional story here. Sure. And you also want, um, I think the, the goal of a plural society is to allow that diversity to take place within its borders. And so rather than saying you're going to be a weird nation and everybody in this nation needs to be weird, <laughs> instead what you're going to do is you're going to have a mix and you're going yeah. to allow, I think the question is whether or whether I, mean, I do think that quotes weird institutions, i.e. liberal democracy, rule of law, markets, etc., can provide the sort of plurality within which non-weird institu- institutions and communities can flourish. 
can flourish. Yeah. And that's one of the, so the, in the penultimate chapter in the weirdest people in the world, I, I lay out innovation. I'm trying to explain the industrial revolution, but the key idea is that innovation results from the recombination of ideas. And I draw on this research looking at immigrants to the U.S., which have really powered a lot of U.S. innovation because you get immigrants coming in from different places and their ideas recombine with the native population. And there's beautiful analyses by economists showing that they actually make the, the native born folks more creative and more innovative than they would have been otherwise because they get some ideas from the newcomers and then they recombine and make new stuff. And, you know, so that just propels patenting and whatnot. And, you know, if you look at this research on collective intelligence, it's not that analytic thinking, which is a weird way of thinking is the best way. The, the most effective groups at solving problems are ones that have analytic and holistic thinkers. Uh, Cause you know, you get the, you get it from multiple perspectives that way. Yeah. So, well, so the, the, the liberal case for epistemological diversity, you know, I think um, very well made uh, using some of that, some of that hard evidence, I think, which is great. I want to talk to you a bit about polygyny, uh, which is mostly polygamy, I guess. Am I getting that the right way around? Polygamy is. So uh, within polygamy, there's two kinds, which is polygyny, a man with multiple wives or polyandry, a woman with multiple husbands. Okay, got it. So I have so poly, so and polygyny, polygyny. Is, more, is much more common. Yeah, okay. um, and it used to be. I mean, across human history, I think you say ninety percent of human societies practiced one form uh, or or another. Right? That was it's the norm. Yeah, it's yeah. So the eighty five percent is the number you get from uh, these anthropological databases. But certainly, in any society with complexity you would get men taking additional wives. I mean, you know, people immediately point out that, you know, Athens is is an exception to this because they have legal monogamy. But it's kind of an exception with an an asterisk because Athenian men were limited to one Athenian wife, but they could have sex slaves and other kinds of concubines as long as they weren't taking away from the poor Athenian men, basically. It eliminates competition with the poorer guys. Uh, I see. So it was a way to solve the... The math problem, as you, you call it, the exactly. math problem of surplus men, which you, you you write very well about, and you have some great examples of, and, and and the math problem being what you've just identified, which is that if you have men, high status men, taking lots of the women, then that leaves a bunch of men without women. Right? That's crudely put, and you have a nice illustration of that, and you make the point that. The prohibitions on polygamous marriages derive from the same from from weird foundations. You say ultimately rooted in in Christian doctrine. So it's part of this marriage and family program was to essentially in Western societies now the idea of multiple you know, spouses is still is is considered very odd. It's coming back into debate a little bit now actually, but it's still considered to be yeah. very odd. Yeah, I'm in, and there will be interesting debates to come. So when I was in British Columbia in Canada, uh, they raised the issue of whether the law criminalizing polygyny was constitutional. So I was involved in a big trial and things they had in British Columbia, and they ultimately decided that the law was constitutional and that you could prosecute people for violating polygyny because, uh, you know, fundamentalist Mormons were, were doing this in the southern part of British Columbia. But there's kind of, I mean, from a, you know, if you just take a kind of, liberal point of view where, you know, this is an archaic marriage custom and why can't people be free and practice their religion and stuff? You know, there's a case to be made for why you shouldn't worry about how many spouses, as long as consenting adults are making these agreements here. Uh, but the case to, for, uh, for it to be illegal is that there's a public good problem, that if the elite high status males begin to accumulate lots of additional wives, then you have this pool of low status unmarried men. And, you know, there's a good case to be made that that's going to lead to more crime and substance abuse and 
other kinds of problems. Yeah, and I think that's important because what that means, and you spell this out very well, is that if you're a low-status man with little chance, apparently, of being able to mate and fulfill your evolutionary destiny, that it's in your interest to take big risks, right? You, you take a risk. It's a 50-50 chance that the risk will pay off and you'll accumulate resources that allow you to get a wife and procreate, and a 50% chance you die. Now, under normal, under other circumstances, a 50-50 risk of dying would not be a good risk. But if it's the only chance your DNA has, it's a great risk. So you had more risk, more crime, more violence. Right. So the idea is that you, in, in this polygynist society, you've got to take these, make these big efforts, take big risks in order to climb the status ladder. And the, the more polygyny there is, the more bigger risks you have to take. Whereas in a monogamous society you can only have one rich guys can only have one wife at a time. So, you know, if you just work a bit harder, you increase your chances and sort of it's more incremental. And then of course, once you're a father, you have children, we know this lowers men's testosterone and, you know, they have a stake in the future once they have a child and you get a different, you know, you domesticate the male essentially. Yeah. I think it's a really, I, w- I want to come on to testosterone in a minute because that's the most disturbing part of your book as someone that's been married for a very long time, but we'll come to that in a second. But the, I'm going to quote from the book. You say, in the monogamous society, women are prevented from becoming plural wives, even if they want to, and are thus effectively forced to marry lower status men. And I think this central insight you've got there is that there's a tendency here to say, of course, men want this, right? Men would want this, wouldn't they? But actually, it's really women's choices that are being constrained more than men, right? By monogamy. Right, because w- women can't marry the man they might want, right? So they might want to be the second wife of a billionaire or yes. you know, a celebrity or something rather than being the first wife of a low-status guy. And so, but the, the law you know, preventing polygyny inhibits women from ex- exercising that option. I noticed that Utah have just decriminalized uh, polygamy. They've, it's now down to the level of a traffic violation or something like that. And I think it's the idea is that there's a, it, it makes it easier to discover abuse and so on. But what was your reaction? You're probably watching that quite closely. But what's your reaction to their decision to do that? What do you think is going to happen? What would you predict? Well, I think, you know, these things can take a long time to unfold. But what you can see, you can, what you can imagine. So say you want to be polygynous uh, and you're a rich guy. You can just move to Utah. And you can imagine the Mormons, they're going to have more children and if the, if, the fundamentalist Mormons. Um, and then if they're assuming they're producing other fundamentalist Mormons, the polygyny is going to spread by, by, that, by that route. So I would expect there to be a gradual increase in, in polygyny rates. And then in the long run, the, the idea would be this is going to cause problems. I mean, the fundamentalist Mormons all, already create these lost boys which is a well-documented phenomenon. Boys have to leave the community. They're essentially kicked out because there's not enough. So they're sort of bleeding off this, you know, these, these guys who, you know, have challenges in life um, into the larger society. So, so that, that problem should get worse. Um, but I, I like it as a scientist because it, it'll test my theory. <laughs> of, co- of course, of course, your, your first reaction, if you're being, <laughs> was probably, oh, how great. That'll be a great experiment. <laughs> And I then, wish they'd yeah. randomized, but, you know. <laughs> if, yeah, if only they could have done half the states, you know, in a, right. in a random, yeah, quasi-random trial. I know. But uh, but I hadn't thought about people moving there to do it. I'd thought about people who are already there. But you're right. If this idea gains traction, if you are a billionaire, uh, then just relocate. Everyone's doing it working by Zoom now anyway. So you can imagine some of the Silicon Valley uh, guys moving to Utah and taking 17 wives. Well, I've been, I've been, 
I mean, I guess it's still tricky because, well, I don't know. I don't quite understand the legal implications here because if you marry polygynously in Utah, do other states have to recognize that? Or do you get prosecuted as soon as you go to California? I'm not sure. No, no, you're, you're right. It won't, so the marriages won't be recognized in other states. It's, all they've done is decriminalize it. So it doesn't, you know, it's not, we'll have to wait a bit longer for the equivalent of the, uh, of, of the. So Supreme presumably court. there'll be a Supreme Court challenge at some point. Right? At some point. The other question about this though, is this whole debate about matching men to women and men, not men being left behind has a presumption at the heart of it, I think, which is that women need men. And that they need men more than just to produce a baby. Now, one of the great triumphs of the women's movement has been to ensure that's no longer true. So whilst they still need sperm, still need men, it's actually the amount of economic independence that women have achieved is extraordinary. And so then that means women are actually not women aren't forced to marry anybody. That's right. right. And so doesn't and that I think create that, a similar that has- similar version of the problem? Exactly. And so, I uh, i mean, one of the things that folks in my lab are interested in is the possibility that uh, things like these incel movements, involuntarily celibate guys who collect on the internet and, mm. you know, produce all kinds of hateful speech and, and doing awful stuff, um, that, uh, that that may be being created by female entry into the labor market, relative ec- relatively increasing economic uh, equality between men and women. So women can say they can opt out of the marriage market now, right, if they want. And that's going to create a pool of low-status men who can't get in, um, and that should create the same dynamics. Well, I'm, th- I'm doing some work in this space right now, and I think it, it's interesting to see what the response will be. I think previously people have estimated that the increase, increasing dislocation of men, let's call it that, will lead to a rise in crime and violence and so on. And that has not happened. In fact, if anything, the trend lines are going the other way. And so my view for what it's worth is uh, the incels are interesting, but I think that for every incel, there are probably a hundred guys who are sort of checking out, right? Retreating. There's this phrase in Japan, the herbivores. Right. The herbivores. Yeah. And I think in some, I see much, much more of that. Of course, the incels get the headlines, but right. this, this, I get the guys who just sort of check, and there, there is this kind of men going their own way movement, but they're kind of crazy too. I think it's more interesting just the guys who are just left adrift rather than they're not taking to art, they're not sort of acting out, they're checking out, if you like. Okay. Do you think this is leading to rising use of pornography, rising substance abuse, those kinds of things? Yeah. I mean, I think you put it bluntly uh, if it's not clear that you're needed or that you're going to be needed. Uh, then what's wrong with pornography and weed in the basement with your friends? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the, back to your point about cultural learning, I think my concern is that a byproduct of women's independence, which to be clear is a fabulous liberation, which we're all massively in favor of, but, you know, social changes come with byproducts and downsides that a, a byproduct of that could have been to really significantly weaken the cultural learning that men, boys and men would previously have been subject to about what their role was in life. And mm-hmm. absent that, there are various things they can do. They can take to the barricades and become incels and quit, or they can just shrug and be like, oh, okay, fine, I'll check out. And and I think and here I'm just so far outside out, outside of you know empirical evidence right now, but my instinct is that we've sort of been saved by the technological revolution, uh, by the fact that we have video games and pornography. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've wondered about that too, because you can just retreat into the video game, right? 
Yeah, and you get status from that and community from that. And so on. I think it's you know, evidence that you know a lot of men in their 20s are happier at home playing video games than they would be in the jobs they would otherwise be doing and so on. But but I think this is a, a, a real problem uh, for sure. One thing, of course, that that might affect is mating behavior. And, and here's where I want to ask you about testosterone um, because there's a, a piece in your in your book, an argument in your book about how marriage reduces testosterone, as I alluded to earlier, as someone's been pretty much continuously married for 30 years, this was difficult reading. Um, what you said was, <laughs> you said, and also a great example of your writing, you said weird marriage, which of course is built out of Christian marriage, generates a particular endocrinology. And here you're talking about this issue. And you said, and I go on to quote, church grabbed men by the testicles, which is Fabulous, great writing. Um, and it should be, have good evidence that marriage lowers testosterone. And I think we've also got evidence that being around, so I've seen a paper recently which shows that being around kids lowers testosterone. So it's not just marriage, it's the nurturing behavior. Yep. Um, and that that's good. Marriage as a testosterone suppression system, as you call it, is good. That's good for society. So tell me as a 30-year married guy why this is good. Well, the idea would be that uh, testosterone causes males to think more in zero-sum terms. This can lead to temporal, you know, problems with temporal discounting, uh, violent anger reactions, any anything that's sort of status-related. It can lead you to take the do the riskier status-increasing thing if you're if you're higher in testosterone. So the idea is that by lowering your testosterone, it's basically making you more of a father more willing to invest in your family, invest in your children, play for the long term, and not so not worry so much about, you know, doing everything you can to spike up your status. Yeah, it's interesting. This, uh, this paper I saw recently had a, I found an intriguing finding, which was it showed the testosterone levels in men after they'd had kids, if they were spending time with their kids, and it had that lowering you saw. But, but it also suggested that men with higher testosterone earlier on were more likely to have kids in the first place. And so there's the paper, at least, was suggesting that high testosterone helps you to become a father, but low testosterone yeah. helps you to be to be a father. Is that is that right? Right, and and that fits. I mean, that's what we'd expect, right? Because the the testosterone is part. I mean, a lot of it is for status increasing and competing for mates. So we have these great, you know, this great research place we can look as as birds. So birds do monogamous mating, and you can manipulate the testosterone of birds. And if you, you drive up the the testosterone of certain bird species, they compete even more fiercely, they sing louder, they accumulate more mates and more polygynous. Um, and so they're more reproductively successful. So, But one of the interesting nuances, though, to the marriage thing is it's only in monogamous societies that you have that decline in testosterone after marriage and children. In polygynous societies, it doesn't, doesn't go down. Ah, and that makes perfect sense. Yes, I remember that now because you're still competing in a sense. You're still yeah, you're, you're still looking for mates, right? You're still in the game, and it's normatively approved. It's good for you to look for mates, right? So uh, it's monogamous marriage that has this testosterone reducing effect, which is right. good because it reduces risk taking behavior, and makes us more attentive fathers, and and so on too. And that's a, that actually leads me to a broader question, which is the normative implications of, of some of this work. I think you. You're very careful, I think, about making normative judgments. And I think it's obviously important to your work that you do do that as to say one society better than another, one kind of psychology um, better than another. But when you look at the results of Christian-inspired, weird psychology that's now become what we consider to be the norm in Western societies, then drop in violence, the increase in prosperity, 
massive increases in collaboration, etc. It's it's. I mean, I say this because I mean, maybe I'm saying this because I am weird, right? I'm raised in in the West, but it's hard to look at the results and not to think that's pretty good. And the weird societies have kind of got it right. Something went right here, rather than something that that went wrong. It's a bit like uh, there's a scene in the life of Brian at the end. What have the Romans ever done what, during the you know, What have the Romans ever done for us? It's, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then yeah, and then someone says, "Well, there's education, and then says, and there's peace, and there's water, uh, healthcare, and infrastructure." And each one says, "Okay, apart from education, healthcare, peace, rule of law." It, what have the Romans ever done for us? And and it's a famous a famous scene for the reason because of course sometimes you don't see the benefits of it. So I guess the version of this is like, <laughs> what has weird weird psychology ever done for us except peace, prosperity, etc. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, so it's important. I think th- so. One thing is that I try to emphasize in the book that we're looking at these things. So we think democracy is good, but that's partially because we're weird. It's not clear that everybody else thinks that democracy is good. Uh, in my field work, I one time was discussing the, the voting, the fact that each person gets one vote. And a grandfather said to me, you know, why should my vote count the same as an 18-year-old guy, right? I'm a grandfather. I have these children. So, my, you know, my, my say-so should count more uh, was basically his view. And there was a kind of logic to that. You know, he's been around. He's seen more. Why do, why do we do one-to-one? Um, so there's, there's things like that where people think that age should get certain kinds of preferences, of course, you know, lots of people would say that, you know, the the West hasn't been, you know, I point to in the book, um, declining infant mortality, increasing life length, mm. rising GDP. But you could also point to colonialism, genocide, um, climate change now. There's a kind of bad side to the Industrial Revolution and to the expansion of Europeans. So, you know, I kind of say, well, look, you can emphasize the bad side, you can emphasize the good side, but this is still a question that needs to be explained. Why were these populations able to expand out? In some cases, you know, exterminate Aboriginal Americans uh, from lots of uh, the U.S., but also lower infant mortality, invent inoculations, uh, make cities healthy places to live, put people on the moon, all those kinds of things. Sure. Uh, I mean, one thing I think it usefully does is challenge some of the assumptions about universality, which we would tend to make from a, a weird perspective. And I wanted to ask you to say a bit about human rights. You make the point that the very idea of, I'm just looking to the specific language now, where you say the idea of designing laws based on endowing individuals with rights, and you put rights in scare quotes, only makes sense in a world of analytical thinkers who conceive of people as primarily independent agents, i.e. kind of weird. And so you take something like the UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights, you would say, well, who's to say they're universal? They're not universal. They're deeply weird. The, The whole idea of individual human rights is deeply weird and therefore arguably not applicable to certain people, right? Well, I mean, my point that I wanted to make there is that sometimes you get the sense that people think, and this thing I include, you know, many scholars in this too, that somehow it's rational, that we, we come to these human rights because it's sensible things to do, and that if you just apply reason the way the Enlightenment thinkers did, you end up with something like human rights. And the point I was making is that this is a product of a particular psychology. So weird people tend to think dispositionally, for example. They're analytic thinkers, so they, they explain things by breaking things down into their units, people in this case, and assigning them properties like rights, 
or personalities or preferences, depending on whether you're a psychologist or an economist. And then you then explain things based on that. So if you're trying to justify laws, you assign people properties, rights in this case, and then you can provide a foundation for why you're making this law or that legal decision or setting up a certain policy. Uh, but that doesn't make sense if you focus on relationships. So in lots of places, the crime for hitting someone or killing someone vary depending on the relationship between the two people and actually the social class of those two people also. I mean, formally in the law, it, it would vary uh, depending on those things. And to that, to those folks, it makes sense. There's a relationship of a father hitting a son is totally different from a son hitting a father. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, it's, I mean, it's partly, I think this is part of your gift is to somehow be able to, to step outside and look, look at, it's like the fish seeing the water or whatever the cliche, cliche is to kind of look outside it because, it, because I think it is difficult. I'll give it a, you know, an example from actually I had Mustafa Akyol on a while ago talking about Islamic law and the mm -hmm. fact that in some Islamic countries, whether or not it's rape depends on whether or not the woman was married. You do that to, to woman A, it's rape because she's someone's wife. Do it to woman B, it's not right. because she's not. And that makes perfect sense in a world where it's a <laughs> relation. But it's really very difficult to be okay with that idea. Uh, I, it, just from Yeah, and, and so that's a perfect example because that's based on relationships, right? So it's not the woman. She does, she's not endowed with some right not to be raped. It depends on who she's attached to and what her status is in, in this kind of relationship hierarchy. If she's attached to a male, then she's, she's within his protective shield. And you're, yeah. So in lots of places, you would be basically hurting the man if you were to do anything to his wife. And so she's protected by that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's really hard not to just say, well, it's better if it's just a crime of rape, whatever. And I think we would both say that. I think the difference is that there's an acknowledgement about what is leading us to say that and then argue argue for a kind of un an understanding of, of rights, which we do think could be applied more broadly without somehow claiming that they're magically universal. I think it's this idea of, I'll, I'll call it magic universalism, that somehow it's just out of thin air these are all you know we hold these truths to be self-evident that's actually not what jefferson first wrote that was added that was edited later he said we hold them to be sacred and inalienable it's a bit different but <laughs> there's something about so I, I don't want to overstate the significance of that change but we hold these truths to be self-evident there's something very important about the idea of self-evident and in weird psychologists like well obviously there's natural law like, but you're i think what you're saying is no it's not self-evident you have to argue for it on different grounds that's right it's self-evident if you're weird but not self-evident if you're not was kind of the idea correct and so you can't just say well this is self-evidently better so just do it and if they, and if you don't do it there's something wrong with you you're backward you're right. less developed etc so one of the things we touched on earlier i just want to as we just come into the close here, talk a bit about the, the trend. You've already said it's very important not to have this sort of march of progress idea, which is implicitly weird good, if not explicitly, um, but explicitly getting weirder. This is the march of progress, right? The end of this is where we're going. And and I think you've challenged that as a, just a, a, a normative claim, but just empirically, it seems to me that one can certainly challenge that now, maybe in a way that one wouldn't have done in 1989, but certainly now that it's not at all clear what the trajectory of the world is or even what the US is. So when you look at the, the trends within and across countries through that lens, the weird lens, what do you think the trends are, particularly in the last few years, and what do you think they're going to be over the next year? It's a deeply unfair question, but it's not, 
I hope you'll agree at least it's not clearly just going to get weirder automatically. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and well, so that that's this actually gives us a chance to look at weird psychology. So if you look at analytic thinkers, they tend to think straight lines continue, right? Current trends will continue, whereas holistic thinkers tend to see cycles. And if you look at human history, it's cycles, right? So, or it's it's at least nonlinear patterns where things go up and then they come down. So all you know, societies flourish, but then they just don't keep flourishing they crash, right? And so, you know, I don't know whether the West is crashing now. It might crash in 200 years from now, right? This could be the beginning of a long-term decline. It might have another 500 good years, you know, so I don't make any predictions about that. But you could certainly see how what's going on now could be the beginnings of the cracks that eventually lead to a decline. Um, and the way things happen is things break apart, right? So you get large units and then then they begin to fall apart. So so the UK leaves the European Union. That's a little bit smaller. Who's next going to leave? Mm. You know, the US, there's all these fractures. There's these regional differences. Uh, I don't know. Get, get, that could fracture. So th- those, and that's exactly what you'd expect from history. Yes, yeah, so a sort of uh, uh, advance to bigness and then a retreat back to smallness, fracturing, et cetera. Well, this has just been absolutely fascinating. I'd love it if you have just a couple more minutes to say a bit more about what you're working on now, or just a, I think you've got a couple of projects that you're that you're working on since you finished the book. Yeah, so I'm in trying to dig further and follow up on some of the arguments in the book, and and one of the challenges I had in writing the book is that, with a couple of exceptions, I couldn't have measures of psychology through time. So we've just gotten a big grant to try to use literature, the the Latin corpus maybe the Anglo-Saxon corpus, certainly we're going to use use U.S. newspapers to look and see how people's psychology changes across space and time, at least as we can measure it in these these textual sources. So we think we can get measures of individualism, maybe some measures of tightness, looseness, um, some measures of moral universalism versus a more parochial moral view. Uh, extract it using some of these natural language processing techniques. And that allows us to study variation. Then we can look and see if we can predict that variation with the diffusion of the church, alterations in the kinship system, things like that. And you're using words to do that, right? This is basically, are you gonna, is it the equivalent of a, like a, the Google Ngram where you can sort of see how many words are being used? Uh, Bob, I think Bob Putnam has this book, The Upswing, which the way they look at the use of the word I versus we, just this just post-war yeah. US using that sort of approach. Is that similar? Yeah, idea? so we'll, 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 we'll use the I versus we. Of course, you have to modify it for Latin um, and use these word bags. So uh, John Haidt uh, and his colleagues, Jesse Graham, have developed a word bag for the five foundations of, of uh, moral psychology. So we can use that and we should be able to get a moral universalism, you know, more, moral, more words that are morally universalistic versus more morally parochial, that kind of thing. Fascinating. And what else? That's probably enough for most people, but I suspect you're doing something else. Well, the other fun thing, which I alluded to earlier, is uh, actually this also comes from John Hyde and Jesse Graham. They've they've gathered data on their moral foundations. They have a website that's mm. been running since 2008. And so you can get measures of U.S. counties using their moral foundations questionnaire. And we find lots of interesting variation. And the interesting thing is this, the counties have been dividing. So some counties are getting more moral parochial and some are getting more morally universalistic. And then we've used that to predict Trump voting in 2016 and 2020. Ben Anke, one of my colleagues in economics, has a great paper on this. And you can show that it, independent of all the things that uh, political scientists and others use to predict voting behavior, that morality is a big predictor of who votes for who. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're basically trying to understand the changing dynamics of the U.S. by looking at the changing psychological patterns. 
course, then the question is, why do you getting this split in psychology? Yeah. And there's a couple different reasons. One, we seem economic shock seems to push people more towards moral parochial. And of course, some U.S. counties have been hit hard by economic shocks. Weather shocks seem to do the same thing. So with rising climate change, we're getting more hurricanes and, you know, other fires, things like that. And of course, those are differentially affecting some counties versus others. Does that make so people more? Par- so that makes people more parochial if there's a. Yeah, yeah. So weather, like, uh, yeah, getting hit by a weather shock sort of, it makes people more cooperative, but it tightens the circle. That's, uh, there's a tragic irony in there, I'm sure. Is that what you, I had it's a while since I've looked at that, um, although I, I will add link, links to the show notes to John's website, which is great. Morally parochial, give an example of what, what would be a morally parochial position versus a morally universal one in that data? Well, so it's sort of loyalty to the friends, family, people in your town, and that's at the expense of more distant strangers. So for example, if you look at charitable giving, uh, we find that people in more parochial places are charitably giving to the firefighters in their town, whereas people in more universalistic places are giving to poor kids in Africa, things like that. Or to national organizations, maybe or something like, and can you, that absolutely fascinating. I'd love to, love to talk to you more about that at some point. Cause I guess one of the issues is how far that selection, uh, you know, is it because all the people who've got more of the morally universalist views are the ones who leave? I mean, there's huge out migration from a lot of these counties. So they're the ones, so they, yeah, and they, they move to question. places and then maybe the people who've got more morally parochial views are the ones who, even if they go to the city for a while, they move back when they want to raise their kids. And so I, I think the really tough question to answer would be how far, we're seeing growing selection into spaces based on those moral universes, if you like, and how far certain places are encouraging those kinds of moral universes. It's got to be a bit of both, I'm, I assume, and some sort of feedback loop probably. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, we, we don't have any data like this for this kind of measure, moral universalism versus parochialism. But increasingly from studies in the UK using the UK biobank data, I mean, people, you know, you can measure things using these GWAS studies that looks at the genes that predict various phenotypes. And people, genes do sort in space uh, in disturbing ways. So. Yeah. And there are some reasons to think that might be a good thing because it allows us to select into the sorts of communities that we want to live in. And the reason it's a bad thing because it's going to increase the fractures and maybe reduce the diversity of thought. So as always, it's going to be a, like most blessings. It, it's a mixed one <laughs> at best. But well, that was a great tour. Uh, I was so looking forward to doing this conversation again, and uh, and it was great. Maybe maybe I did record it this time, but um, I'm tempted to say I didn't, just so that I can have you on for a third time and dig deeper. But maybe <laughs> maybe we'll wait till your next book or another paper or something. But I just it's it's great, terrific uh, work, and I will just say that the the stance that you take. Uh, with regard to your own data normatively, uh, I think is incredibly important too. I think you you just, you strike exactly the right balance between having views about what the data is saying, but being very clear that that's just what the data is saying. And I think, I think for a lot of scholars, that balancing act between being empirical without appearing to be normatively naive is incredibly difficult, especially right now. And I think you do great aplomb. So congratulations. Thank you for coming on again. (laughs) Okay. Good to be with you. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests. 
to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. <laughs>